Welcome to the Holy Cross Sermon Podcast. This whole year we're exploring the life and teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke. We are currently in a series called Kingdom Come. We will be looking at passages at the end of Luke where Jesus prepared his followers on how to live and partner with the work of God's kingdom. Join us now as we dive into another passage. One of the statements I've heard people say regularly in recent months is when things get back to normal. And by back to normal, I think they mean when life gets back to the way it was before January, you know, the way we've always done it, when things return to our pre-pandemic way of doing things, basically when this thing is all over with. I know I found myself thinking like this, and I've even heard myself saying this, especially when trying to plan for future events. Like, how do you do Christmas this year? And how do you plan your budget for next year? You know, when things get back to normal. And it's in these moments of confusion and worry and decision-making that I sometimes feel a kind of ache inside, a longing for when things will get back to normal. Maybe you have felt something like this too. I don't know if it is nostalgia for a daily life that more closely resembles our recent past before masks and before shields and before social distancing. When we could shake hands and give hugs, I, I miss shaking hands and giving hugs at the door. Now we've got to do you know, these elbow things and fist bumps, and, and that's a good thing, but it's just not normal. Maybe it's the need for control that drives the feeling, you know, that desire to revert to a time when change was not so universally imposed upon us. But what I suspect I'm struggling with, and maybe some of you are too, is what psychologists call normalcy bias, which is our human tendency to believe change is temporary and that the future will again resemble the past. And so we think or say, if we could just hurry up and get through this and get back to normal, well, then in the words of Bob Marley, everything's going to be all right. But the problem, I think, with thinking like this is that it keeps us from adapting to change. And it prevents us from modifying our outlooks and and altering our expectations And that usually leads to anger and disappointment and sometimes depression or heightened anxiety, stress, in which we become more rigid, controlling over the people around us. Or we may go to the opposite extreme and become just simply rebellious to the whole thing because we long for getting back to normal. That's where I think our gospel lesson today in Luke chapter 21 can help us. Because Jesus is describing for his followers a time when change is going to be imposed upon them in totality through the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, and subsequently their whole way of life would be altered. And he lays out for them and for us too a vision for understanding the world and the times in which we live between the first and second coming of Christ in this time that will ultimately culminate in his return. And what he does is he gives them and us also hope for the future. 
think ultimately Jesus is showing us as his people how to live when the world around us is out of control and there is no getting back to normal. Now, before I dive us into the text itself, let me just give a little background on Luke 21 because um, it's important. This is called the Olivet Discourse because it's believed that Jesus gave this teaching on the Mount of Olives, which is just a short walk across a valley uh, to a hill that overlooks the temple in Jerusalem. Matthew 24 and Mark 13 are also versions of the Olivet Discourse, with Matthew 24 being the most exhaustive. Luke's version is a little more historical. Matthew's is a a little more uh, apocalyptic, if you will. And what we need to know about the Olivet Discourse is it is the most challenging part of the Gospels because it's dealing with events in the future. It's dealing with prophecy. It concerns the time between the first and second comings of Christ and the end times and because of the nature of prophecy itself. When you read prophecy in the Bible, this is what you need to understand. It telescopes. That's the theological word would be called telescoping. So that when God spoke through prophets, the prophecy had an application in the immediate or in the near to the time in which it was given, but that it telescopes out, ultimately finding its completion in the end or in the day of the Lord or in the return of Christ. So think of a telescope, application in the present, application later down the line, ultimate application in Christ's return in the day of the Lord. And so when we come to the Olivet Discourse, we need to know that really faithful, godly, believing biblical scholars have disagreed on their understandings of what Jesus is speaking about because it's about the future and also because of the nature of prophecy. So we want to be really humble when we come to this particular text and as we look at it in the next few weeks. Now let's remember our immediate context. It's Tuesday of Passover week. Jesus has been teaching in and around the temple. He's already made his triumphal entry, right? That's Palm Sunday, we call it now. The crowds have adored him. He's been teaching in the temples, and he has become the absolute center of the Passover. Now, Passover week would draw hundreds of thousands, perhaps as many as a million people to Jerusalem. And so it was a big to-do. We, we would have to think something like St. Peter's Basilica on Easter Day in Rome to get an idea. Or, for a, a secular example, think Times Square, New York City, New Year's Eve, right? The place is packed. You can barely move. There's so many people there. And it's a celebration that the Jews were commanded to perform every year in remembrance of when God delivered them from Egypt, completely and totally saving them, and particular through the death of a lamb, a sacrificial offering that allowed them to escape judgment. It's in the middle of this week that Jesus has taken over. He's center stage. Everybody has their eyes on him. And the religious and secular leaders, they are angry. Their disdain and their dismay has really flowed over. And what they've done is they've come into a political alliance, the religious and the secular coming into an alliance because they have decided that Jesus has got to die. And the reason, of course, is he's threatening the things that they hold dear. He's threatening their money. 
He's threatening their power. He's threatening their worship. And he's threatening their lifestyle. Basically, Jesus is threatening their normal. So we go to the text in verse 5. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the day will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So the temple was huge. It was imposing. It was marvelous. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about the temple saying that some of the stones were as big as 60 feet long and 9 feet high and 8 feet wide and they were overlaid with gold and beautiful hangings and and just incredible artistic craftsmanship. It was a marvelous place to see. And like so many of the other things in this world, it looked so permanent. It it looked like it it would last because how could something so big ever come down? Solid and unchangeable and immovable. And Jesus basically said, it's all going to be gone very soon. And not one stone will be left. Verse 7, And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will the sign be when these things are about to take place? I'm really impressed by their answer here. um, Because they didn't say that's impossible. Now think back a year ago. If somebody had told you a year ago what 2020 would be like, You and I probably would have said, that's impossible. The world's going to basically shut down, come to a standstill through a pandemic. You know, our our minds have a hard time of conceiving of the kind of change that we've gone through this year that they were about to go through. That's that normalcy bias. And that's that sense of it's all going to be all right as long as it all stays the same. Well, Jesus said in verse 8, as they are just basically asking, what should we look for so we can avoid this? He said, see that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm he and the time is at hand. Don't go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, don't be terrified for these things must take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs. From heaven. So he begins to describe the not so distant from then fall of Jerusalem that would take place in AD 70, which is less than 40 years from the time at which Jesus is speaking. And we'll look at this a little bit more next week and the implications of it. And then he begins to prophecy or telescope, prophesying outward to describe other future events. He's describing the time we're living in between his first and his second coming. And it gives this summary of future history with a brief reference to these end-time calamities. So what does he say? He says there's going to be all kinds of false alarms that are going off down through the ages. If, If you're a mom, think Braxton Hicks contractions, right? They feel like the real thing, but they're not. But they're signaling that the real thing is coming. And so he says... These alarms are going to go off down through the ages. It indicates delivery is coming. It indicates what he said is true, but it isn't the real thing yet. So what does he point to? False messiahs. Throughout history, there have been all kinds of false Christs. And in sort of the last 40 or 50 years, I mean, I can think of three. Jim Jones and the People's Temple, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, and Marshall Applewhite and Heaven's Gate. And of course, all of those ended really poorly. He said there will be wars. 
Think about our country's recent history. Afghanistan, Iraq, Vietnam, Korea, World War II, World War I. That's just the last hundred years. Historian Will Durant once wrote, War is one of the constants of history and is not diminished with civilization and democracy. In the last 3,420 years of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. So war is actually normative, and the absence of war is unusual. And Jesus says there will be natural disasters like earthquakes and famines and hurricanes and pestilences, which includes pandemics like the one we're dealing with right now. So as Christians, we've got to see what we're living in in the light of what Jesus said the time would be like between his first and second coming, that we're living in what he said would happen. And when we find ourselves longing for things getting back to normal, I think we need to understand that Jesus said this would be part of the normal of this age in which we live. That's not popular, but it is what he told us. Charles Swindoll, the pastor, wrote this. These events, false messiahs, natural disasters, wars, are part of the normal chaos associated with the dominion of evil. And unfortunately, none of us is immune to them. Even though we're citizens of God's kingdom, through our faith in Christ, we are living, as it were, in enemy territory and in a fallen world, and we experience the world's chaos along with everyone else. Basically, what that means is there's no bubble wrap around our lives just because we belong to Jesus. We're going to deal with the things that other people deal with. Verse 12, Jesus continues, But before all this, before the pending destruction of Jerusalem, telescoping out, and also before the end times, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Friends, that's the book of Acts right there. The book of Acts plays this out. And you only have to get to Acts chapter 4 to see this happening. Peter and John are taken before the Sanhedrin, before rulers and governors. And the story of Paul's life is constantly being brought before rulers and governors and kings. You get to Acts chapter 6, and you have the first Christian martyr in Stephen. So it doesn't take very long. Jesus continues, verse 13, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I'll give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So Jesus is telling us that in this age, Christians will routinely be persecuted for their faith, including by family members. When I came to Christ, you know who it was that gave me the most grief of all? It was my stepfather, a physician, brilliant man. And he said, didn't I teach you to think better than that? Why are you checking your mind at the door? Why are you relying on some crutch from the past? Now, that's a minor form of persecution. But when it's in your own family, I mean, that could be really painful. And most of the friends I had when I came to Christ dropped me as quick as you can imagine. 
And part of that was because suddenly God's light was shining in my life and it was exposing them to the darkness of their own hearts. And I wasn't even trying. That's just what happens when you come to Christ. Others see their own darkness and they usually hide from it because they are not ready or willing to repent. So Jesus says, there will be martyrs. And in the last century, we've had more Christian martyrs than in the preceding centuries from the time of Christ combined. So this is not like something that used to happen. This happens all over the world all the time. We live in an unusual place, in fact. But what he says is this is an opportunity. Now, I, I, that caught my ear, and I went and looked it up just to go, what, is he, what does that mean? Because opportunity is defined as a favorable thing. It's a good chance for advancement. Advancement of what? Of the gospel. It's a good chance for the advancement of the gospel. An opportunity to bear witness to salvation in Jesus Christ who has entered in and who has died a death on a cross and has been raised from the dead for the salvation of all who call upon his name. It's a chance to proclaim him as king so that when we yield to him, we're forgiven and restored to God for all of eternity. Though when we reject him, we choose to set ourselves outside of salvation. Now, it could be said that the gospel whispers during times of peace, but it fairly shouts in the midst of persecution. It was the early church father, Tertullian, who lived between 155 and 220 A.D., so not long after the time of Jesus, who wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that was a time when Christians were routinely being burned at the stake and thrown to the lions, and you've seen the movie Gladiator, that sort of thing. That was normative because Christians wouldn't yield their lives to Caesar, but were yielding them to Christ as Lord. And what Tertullian meant was that when non-believers see Christians, us, living what we say we believe, even to the point where it costs us our lives, that's when they pay attention the most. Because it's in the midst of our suffering that they go, wait a minute, these people must really believe this stuff. If they would even lose their life, suddenly they recognize the temporariness of their own lives and they look for the gospel as something which is true. Jesus makes the promise, not a hair of your head will perish. Which is weird if you just think, wait a minute, what doesn't that mean? It doesn't mean that you won't suffer at the hands of others. It doesn't mean that we'll always have everything we want and that life will always go our way. It doesn't mean we won't deal with the effects of wars and natural disasters. And it doesn't mean we won't have our normal upended in the midst of pandemics. It means... Christian, you are secure in the arms of your father. The story that is told about a house that caught on fire one night, and most of the family got out, but there was one young boy who went up the stairs instead of down the stairs, and he made it out to the roof. His father stood on the ground below him as the boy was on the roof, and the father was shouting, jump, I'm going to catch you. The father knew that the boy had to jump in order to escape the flames and to save his life. But all the boy could see was smoke and blackness and flame. He couldn't see anything around him. And as you can imagine, he was afraid to leave the roof. 
But the father kept yelling, jump, I will catch you. And the boy said, but I can't see you. To which the father said, yes, but I can see you. And that's all that really matters. When you're tempted to wonder where God is in the midst of your disappointments and your heartaches, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of pain, in the midst of times in which life doesn't seem right or fair or good, in the midst of times in which our normal is upended, we need to recognize that he's got us. He has you and your life is secure in him because you've trusted in his son, Jesus. His love for you does not change. His truth does not change. His grace does not change. His word does not change. His ways do not change. His son does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so his admonition to us today is hold on. Hold on. And allow the truth to shape your life, not by feelings, but by faith and by the word of God and by truth. Let's pray. Father, we want to set our hope on the living God. Not simply staying immature, but growing up into the full stature of Christ. Lord, meet us in the midst of what's not normal to us, but you said would be normal for this world. And help us to walk with you in it. Thank you, Lord, that you come to live in us not just with us. So, Lord, lead us to Christ, that we might meet every opportunity to bear witness for the gospel. We pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.